Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, you'll hear another one of our candidate conversations that I did recently with Sarah Beeson. Sarah is a candidate for the state Senate representing parts of Roswell, Alpharetta, and Johns Creek. And Sarah and I spoke about her campaign for the state Senate, along with some of the most challenging issues on the plates of state lawmakers, including decisions made on the state budget and an agenda to address police misconduct. Sarah and I talked on the day before Sonny died last week, but most of what we discussed held up through the end of session. One thing to note, though, we do reference a proposal that would have banned the Secretary of State and local elections officials from mailing out absentee ballots in future elections. That proposal ultimately failed. But as we talked about in our session recap podcast that you can also find in your podcast feeds, it was notable that in the tight time frame lawmakers had to conclude this pandemic-delayed session, and following the disastrous administration of the June 9th primaries, that this was the solution that was considered in committee. So let's go ahead and turn it over to my conversation with Sarah Beeson. Joining today's podcast is Sarah Beeson, a candidate for the state Senate in State Senate District 56. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, Sarah, you have been involved in multiple advocacy roles in recent years, and, and I'm really interested in in your background there and, and how it led to you running for state senate. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you've done and about that decision you made to transition from advocacy to running for office? Sure. Um, so currently, I guess I'll, I'll start most currently with what I do. Um, I help run my family's small business, which has been based here in Roswell for over 20 years. We do environmental consulting. Um, And with that, I've been involved with the National Small Business Association. Um, But prior to coming on board with my family's company a few years ago, I was previously with the Human Rights Campaign, which is America's largest LGBTQ advocacy group um, based out of Washington, D.C. I worked remotely here in Georgia, and I would commute back and forth. Um, And part of my reason for leaving that job was because I gave birth to my first son at the time, um, who is now three years old. um, And I didn't want to go back and forth once a month from Atlanta to DC and leaving him at home. Um, Also, it was really important to me to kind of provide my parents with uh, with a plan for retirement in terms of what they're going to be doing with their company. I know that's something that a lot of small business owners face as they start to age out and are looking towards retirement. Um, so that's something that was important to both my husband and myself was to um, essentially carry on the torch through my family's company. Um, in addition to the work I've done with the Human Rights Campaign, I've also been on the board for Advance Atlanta, which is a local nonprofit dedicated to expanding transit options here in the metro Atlanta area. And I provided representation for North Fulton. But yeah, as a whole, I've, I've been involved in several advocacy groups um, with a lot of different advocating on behalf of a lot of different topics. And for you, how did that lead to your decision to run for state senator? Were you looking for an opportunity to make a greater impact or provide a different kind of contribution? How how did you end up as a candidate for, for state office? Sure. Um, I think that kind of rose out of frustration as a whole, um, a feeling kind of unheard and represented on the state level. Um, only one in four lawmakers in the Georgia Senate is a woman. Even fewer than that is a mother of small children like myself. So I felt it was important to have somebody 
who understood the issues that were not only important to me, but important to a lot of people within my district, um, children who are going through K through 12 or pre-K education here in Georgia, parents who are you know similarly worried about the future of their children in regards to that. I thought it was important to have somebody who had at least a foundational understanding of why the environment as a whole is important, including uh, mitigating and preparing for inevitable climate change. Um, I have a master's of science in environmental management, um, someone who understood what it's like to actually run a small business. And I don't mean to run a small business kind of as a hobby or on the side, but that's, that's your bread and butter. That's your day to day. Um, you have more than 50 employees who are depending on you for their paycheck and someone who is at least privy to kind of the plight of people of color, um, LGBTQ people, um, people who are often marginalized here in the state of Georgia. And I didn't feel like those voices were being represented at the state level, at least on the Senate side. So instead of, I kind of kept waiting to see who's going to run. I figured, why, why am I waiting? I, if these are the types of voices that I want represented and these are the um, opinions and the framework that I'd like brought to the lawmaking table, then why not run myself? So if you were to get elected to the state Senate, there are a lot of challenging issues that would be on your plate. And one of those issues that has been most visible in recent weeks has been the demand for reforms to policing practices in our state. Cities across Georgia and the country have been site of demonstrations against police misconduct in recent weeks following the deaths of George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, and others at the hands of police. What message are you hearing from demonstrators who have taken to the streets in recent weeks? What message are you hearing from them? And what policies, in your view, does that translate into? Sure. Um, So I recently participated in a march here in Roswell, which included Congresswoman Lucy McBath, as well as local local pastor Lee Jenkins. Um, It was really helpful, too, in the sense that they had a, a good open dialogue with the chief of police here, Chief Conroy, as well as the mayor, uh, Mayor Lori Henry. So I think that was something that was critical that I think we need to see, not only here in Roswell um, or in my district as a whole, but across the state is being able to see this collaboration between the community as a whole um, and open conversation. Um, And Lee Jenkins, the pastor um, who had this conversation as well, uh, is a black man. So being able to bring his perspective to the table um, with a white male chief of police and kind of asking these difficult questions and hearing his answers, that that dialogue as a whole, I thought was incredibly helpful. But it comes down to community policing, I believe. Um, Having a police department or a police force that is representative of the community as a whole um, and is held accountable by the community as a whole. Um, in terms of policies statewide that I think we need to see change, and I, I think this is something that's largely been brought to the table by protesters who are not only marching but are currently at the Capitol right now, are some laws that we need here in Georgia. And those include um, eliminating no-knock warrants. Um, I think that was one of the key issues with Breonna Taylor's murder was police implementing a no-knock warrant, which means they do not need to identify themselves as police when issuing a warrant. Uh, they were also plainclothes policemen who otherwise you would have no idea that these were police officers issuing a warrant. Um, instead, it, it appears as a home invasion. And that's something that's actually been problematic here in Georgia within the last decade as well, where these have gone awry. I also believe that no-knock warrants violate the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution as a whole. And it's um, not only timely, but desperately needed for us to eliminate um, that method of policing. 
Additionally, I think being able to provide resources for police departments throughout the state um, in terms of uh, mental health access to mental health professionals or social workers who can not only support de-escalation tactics, but provide support in issues where someone's experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, and that's not something that's within the purview of a police officer's training um, or even their background or education. Um, so that's something that they would be able to defer to a professional who that is their framework that they work within to de-escalate those situations. But I think this is something that can be easily visited. I don't think that this is um, an us versus them situation. I think it's just simply a conversation that needs to be had within our communities um, to better understand the plight of Black Americans as well as people of color um, and being able to support not only their, their, their purview in this, but um, I guess be able to provide a sympathetic ear in these situations as well. So this conversation landed on the steps of the legislature very late in the legislative session. It was a legislative session that was delayed by the pandemic. And so we are talking on the day before Sine die. Uh, by the time listeners hear this, the legislative session likely will have ended. And it seems unlikely that significant policing reforms are going to pass in this session. Uh, but the one thing that did pass sort of in response to this conversation broadly was a hate crime statute. But that hate crime statute collided with this discussion around policing in a way that some lawmakers wanted to include the profession of policing and, and other first responders as a protected class in within this hate crime statute. Um, overall, are were you happy to see a hate crime statute pass the legislature? And what did you make of this conversation of police police and first responders being included as a special class it was ultimately kicked over to different legislation but but was tied to tied up in this conversation yeah so as a whole i think it was absolutely needed that hate crimes legislation was going to have to be passed this session um the fact that georgia was only one in four states within the 50 united states that lacked hate crimes protections as a whole was egregious um and this is something that should have been acted on well in advance. So it definitely came in pretty much in the 11th hour that they were able to pass this House bill um, clean for the most part. As you had mentioned, um, I know that first responders, um, specifically police, were added within the hate crimes protections. Personally, I thought that addition was fairly irrelevant um, in the sense that I don't think that something such as someone's race, someone's identity, something that's crucial to who they are and how they were born. It's not equivalent to someone's profession or their occupation. So I think that there was a little bit of non-equivalency that was added to that legislation to make it a little bit more murky. Um, I also thought it was irrelevant in the sense that first responders, specifically police as well, have protections already within the Georgia Code that increases the sentencing in the event of um, an attack or, uh, for instance, uh, if someone were targeted for being a police officer specifically, and it comes out in the court of law, they already have coverage within the Georgia Code. Um, so it was fairly redundant on that end as well. Um, I do know that they passed it separately within the Georgia Senate as well through a separate bill. Um, and to me, that seems fairly redundant as a whole whole if we already have it um, as a law. I, 
I'm not quite sure what the motivation was for bringing that up now. Um, and that's something that I think uh, lawmakers should be able to uh, share kind of their line of reasoning for um, why they found that that was um, a timely response to especially what's going on in our country right now. So you and I are speaking on Thursday evening, and this afternoon, the chairs of the House and Senate Appropriations Committees announced a budget agreement that cuts nearly a billion dollars of funding from K-12 education and $2.2 billion total from the state budget, all of this in response to the recession caused by the pandemic. It appears that this budget was balanced primarily through cutting state spending rather than adopting options to increase state revenues. And I want to grant that that I haven't, and, and you probably haven't either seen these final documents. Uh, but in a broader sense, if you had been in the legislature over the past couple of weeks, what kind of budget would you have advocated for? And do you think that a budget in today's context should have done more to raise state revenues? Yeah, so that's actually something that I've been advocating for actively uh, through social media is being able to increase our line of revenue in the state of Georgia. Um, Georgia has one of the lowest cigarette taxes across the United States. Um, In fact, it was during budget discussions, um, it was brought up, I believe, by Senator Elena Parent originally that it actually costs more for the state of Georgia to provide um, healthcare as a whole for people who are smokers compared to what they bring in in terms of tax revenue on those cigarettes. So instead of just simply doing something like increasing um, cigarette taxes, at least to offset the health costs um, for caring for folks who are smokers, um, that would be fairly common sense. Obviously, taking a look at um, larger loopholes in terms of taxing to see where people are kind of taking advantage of the tax system and placing that burden on um, your individual or your family taxpayers, as well as small business taxpayers. I think when you look at some of the larger corporations as well, um, it doesn't necessarily add up in terms of what they're paying for taxes compared to um, what your average person is paying for taxes. I think personally, a lot of people agree with me on this. It is unconscionable that every single time we face any sort of budgetary shortfall, the first thing that's placed on the chopping block is our children's education. Um, it's essentially passing the buck to our future. Um, so instead of seeing which ways that we could um, reallocate funds or which ways we could raise funds in ways that won't necessarily impact your average individual taxpayer, your family taxpayers, they would rather instead um, cut teachers pay or look at furlough days or chop. I mean, the $2 billion as a whole, um, you're going to be impacting a school year where there's a lot that's going to be up in the air. And I mean that in response to the pandemic. Um, School or county school systems right now are currently trying to figure out how they're going to come back and if they are going to come back. And I know that it's not necessarily going to be easy, um, especially when you're looking in terms of busing students. There are already shortages of school buses as it is, um, but in order to do that in a way that you can distance children, I'm not really sure how they're going to be able to do um, just basic operations, especially when they're trying to make a dollar stretch further. You're also looking at issues, too, in terms of um, counseling for students is going to be taking a major shortfall as well. And that's not only in terms of providing mental health support for these kids, um, but you have high schoolers who are going to be looking at colleges and counselors are already strapped as it is. They're the ones who are going to be helping them make that transition and try to apply to colleges as well. 
um, and you're cutting down those resources. Um, not only is the education budget taking a um, giant cut, but if you're looking at our healthcare system as a whole, it's also taking a large cut as well. And not only in terms of finding different means of tapping into other revenue streams, like I mentioned the cigarette tax, I don't understand why the concept of Medicaid expansion is not being explored either. Um, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, so it's incredibly relevant to discuss the health of Georgians. Um, and instead of tapping into a line of revenue that already exists, I think that's kind of a misnomer too with a lot of folks. They think by expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act that it's going to be an additional tax to what they're already paying. They've already paid this federal level tax. It is sitting in a pot that can be tapped at any time if the governor of Georgia would simply agree to it and opt in to the Affordable Care Act. But the fact that Georgia's dug its heels in and as of just this past year, they were exploring options for vouchers to try to circumvent expansion of the Affordable Care Act. Um, it just goes to show kind of where priorities are at this point, especially in terms of GOP lawmakers. So, yeah, I do think that we should explore other revenue options. Um, but more importantly, I think that we should expand Medicaid since it's something we've already paid into. So this year's budget is also just the beginning of a long conversation about helping Georgia's economy recover from the pandemic. Budget cuts in the wake of the Great Recession put a rag, put a drag on the state's economy for years. We underfunded the education funding formula for a decade. We still spend less per person in state dollars than we did before the Great Recession in 2008. And state jobs are not the source of stable middle middle class jobs that they once were. This is a big question, too, but in a broad sense, what kinds of policies or a general difference in outlook do you think is needed at the state level to try to produce a more robust economic recovery following this pandemic than the one that was seen following the Great Recession? So if we go back and we look at when the economy was still doing well, so say last year, Governor Kemp was already tasking lawmakers within the Georgia General Assembly to begin looking at ways that we can cut the budget even further. Um, so when you begin to go to a skeleton budget, despite being in what would be considered economically good times, you're already paving the way for when we hit an issue like a global pandemic, that you're going to already have your legs cut off at that point, that you don't really have room to move. I think it just goes to show when you make these decisions that are incredibly short-sighted, um, that it is to a negative effect later on uh, for Georgians as a whole, because you haven't you haven't planned for economic uncertainty. However, now that we currently are dealing with the after effects of the pandemic, um, I know that we're looking at millions of Georgians losing their jobs, um, and some of these jobs, it's, there's no certainty as to when they're going to come back either. Um, I know a lot of folks who are in the um, hospitality industry, who are in the restaurant industry, who are in the entertainment industry. There's no certainty as to if they're going jobs are going to come back and if they do when. Um, so planning for the future and being able to aid in the recovery for Georgia as a whole, um, I don't think it comes down to trying to encourage folks to open their businesses prematurely. Um, and I think that's something that was irresponsible of the Georgia governor um, to try to jump the gun, um, even beyond what uh, the president. Um, the president had given guidelines for when uh, states would be ready to open. And Governor Kemp decided that it was um, 
in Georgia's best interest to begin opening um, the most high-touch, sensitive um, areas such as hair salons or bowling alleys or tattoo parlors um, ahead of when we had even met those guidelines. Not only had our cases not leveled off, they were increasing drastically at the time. Um, so that puts a lot of not only small businesses, but business as a whole in a very sensitive area um, because it kind of forces their hand to open. I don't know that that was planning for the future or planning long-term for our economic recovery. Uh, and then if you're, we're trying to look at ways that we can aid in advancing that or expedite it, uh, I think it's being able to encourage people to socially distance, wear masks. I don't think that wearing masks is a political statement. Somehow it's become inherently political, but wearing masks and being safe as a whole so that we can be able to get our hands around um, what's really a difficult situation. I also think too that there are um, options that the state of Georgia could be exploring um, in terms of financial support, especially for small businesses. There are also, um, for instance, restaurants are one of the hardest hit industries um, being able to close loopholes for insurance companies to be able to say that they are not covered um, for loss of business during a pandemic, being able to get rid of something like that, so that these uh, businesses are supported during very difficult times and can weather the storm until we as a state are actually ready to reopen. Another issue that has been a challenge in Georgia lately has been the administration of elections, and nowhere was that more obvious than the administration of the primary on June 9th. Can you give us your view of what went wrong in the administration of that primary, and what needs to be done between now and November to ensure that we don't have another meltdown in the general election? Yeah, um, so it was I like to say it was a perfect storm because, but a storm kind of implies that it happened by happenstance, and that certainly wasn't the case with the primary. Um, I know that they moved the primary back by almost a month in order to buy more time to prepare, and I don't know what preparations took place during that amount of time. I, while I do commend sending out um, absentee ballot request forms, that was not necessarily. Um, useful in the long run because I know at least several thousand of folks just in my district alone or here in Bolton County alone never received their absentee ballots despite requesting them. Um, so therein is one of the first issues. Um, I know that there were some things that were not necessarily were in the means of control of um, the Secretary of State or the Georgia government as a whole. Um, I know that the one of the uh, people who oversee elections was Fulton County. Um, one person, I believe, passed away from COVID and they're next in line, or at least someone within their office um, was very ill as well. So I know that that threw a wrench in the gears for a lot of their normal operations. They also had a lot of difficulty with recruiting people to volunteer or to work polls. So poll workers were in much lower numbers than normal, which, I mean, I understand folks are um, not willing to um, put themselves in a risky scenario, especially since um, there are a large number of poll workers who are over the age of 60 um, or higher risk individuals. Um, and then that paired with implementing, this was their first election using some of these new voting machines as well. Um, so there's a learning curve to implementing the new voting machines and people understanding kind of how they work and um, the process. It's, it's, what I understand is a lengthier process um, because it has to do with printing and scanning, um, not the normal run of cards that we used in the past. So that's an additional time 
Um, plus, like I mentioned before, a lot of folks never receive their absentee ballots. So if they were willing to take the risk and show up in person to vote, um, assuming that their polling location had not been consolidated with another location, which it did with a lot of areas, especially in the metro Atlanta area, um, and assuming that they didn't already have long lines um, because of people who had waited to vote until the day of the election because they're waiting to see if their absentee ballot was going to come and finally kind of gave up hope um, and showed up to their their um, polling location, these folks still had to cancel those absentee ballots. So that's an additional step. Um, so all that to say, there was a lot going on that led to um, the ridiculously long lines, um, the waits a lot of people had experienced, um, as well as a lot of confusion as well. Um, a friend of mine had had uh, texted me saying um, that he had shown up to his polling location to vote, and that's when he learned his polling location had changed when he had shown up to the location that wasn't open. Um, and it was a week after the election that he received a letter in the mail saying, just so you know, your polling location has changed. Um, so it seemed like it was a little too, li too little too late on that one. Not to mention, uh, I know several friends who are still waiting for their absentee ballots to arrive, despite the fact the Secretary of State's website says that their absentee ballot was mailed, you know, May 25th or whatever the date was, it still hasn't arrived. So um, I'm not sure what was going on with that floating in the ether somewhere. I know that we, uh, Fulton County had outsourced a lot of their um, absentee ballots to out of state. Um, so I know that would add to the delay, but not necessarily um, indefinite delays. So, but looking at heading into November, ways that we could improve this process. I think, I don't know that lawmakers are working to necessarily improve this process across all levels. Um, while you have some lawmakers who are doing good, so for example, overlapping with my district is Representative Josh McLaurin had introduced a bill to um, essentially dissolve Fulton County elections process and rebuild it so that we can make positive changes here well in advance of the November election. Meanwhile, you have um, some Republican lawmakers who had introduced bills and it's moving to make it illegal for the state of Georgia to solicit, like they did previously, sending absentee ballot request forms to Georgians. Um, it's one thing if they do not want to do that, but to put it into Georgia code that is illegal for the state of Georgia to solicit people to request their absentee ballot in a one-step process is egregious. Um, and it flies in the face of not only democracy, but being able to have equal access to voting. Um, I realize that people can take it upon themselves to request their absentee ballot. Um, but that's not to say that people necessarily know that process, especially if you have um, someone who's an older voter, someone who might not have access to the internet, especially during the pandemic. We have a lot of public libraries who are closed. We don't know what the circumstances are going to be heading into the fall. And I think it's legislation that was frankly introduced by lawmakers who are concerned about losing their seats because they know if voting access is increased, and the barriers to vote are lowered, that they will likely lose their seats. And given this, the, what they've tried to do in terms of limiting access to the polls, um, they do need to lose their seats. One conversation that I've kind of lost the thread on in the last year has been the plan to expand transit in the metro Atlanta area. You know, the state established this new governance body, the ATL. Um, it does appear that Gwinnett County is poised to take another shot at expanding transit in that county by joining MARTA via a referendum. 
But I couldn't really tell you more about when people in Metro Atlanta would have the option to take transit instead of getting into their car, how far away that option really is. Has the momentum at the state level for the expansion of transit stalled out in your view? And what needs to change to get that conversation moving again? I'd say that it not hasn't necessarily been tabled indefinitely. I just don't know that it's the highest priority for many right now, given the pandemic. And there's so many other priorities in terms of the budget. Um, about a year ago, two years ago, so um, 2018, the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce had issued a poll to um, all of their members for their legislative priorities heading into that legislative session to see, um, just kind of get a pulse of what people wanted prioritized. And keep in mind, this is when we were still economically doing quite well, um, but transit was actually the number one priority. And in the years since, um, there's been some traction. So you mentioned the passage of legislation that paved the way for the ATL. Um, there was the Gwinnett County referendum, um, which, and that's a separate conversation, but there were roadblocks that were implemented with that as well. The fact that they made it a standalone special election as opposed to just putting it on the November ballot for the general election is really what paved the way for that bill to, or that um, ability for them to expand transit through MARTA um, to die. Um, but I know that there there's some rumblings again, and I know that Gwinnett's kind of on a, a more positive path now than it was previously. So there's a good chance that they would be able to unite within MARTA um, while still keeping um, a lot of their projects localized as well through the ATL. Um, so in other words, they're not necessarily funding projects across the board. Um, but I think what it would take is uh, being able to have access to um, budgetary access at this point. I think there is a desire for transit expansion in Atlanta. And in transit expansion too, I think a lot of people, when you discuss transit expansion, some reason their mind immediately goes to heavy rail or rail as a whole. Um, but it's exploring a lot of different options. It's um, bus rapid transit or BRT. Um, it's, I know in Peachtree Corners, they have some autonomous vehicles that they've also explored and are being able to utilize those now as well. Um, it's looking at um, light rail, but it's, it's a large, and not only that, but being able to um, transit access through um, things like bike lanes or multimodal paths. Um, I think it's a larger picture that's going to take a lot of 30,000 foot view planning. And I'm hoping that's something that through the authority like the ATL, we can have some um, broader pictures painted for us in terms of how we can plan for transit as a whole. Um, when you look at transit in the state of Georgia, because of the way that we have never had a larger picture to this or a larger planning um, method of planning to it, you have so many different transit authorities that operate within a metropolitan area that it makes no sense. Um, it's also difficult to fund when they're all individually broken up as well. Um, and it's harder to make them all operate in tandem. Um, in fact, I'll actually use an example from a Republican lawmaker. So Senator Brandon Beach, who is a neighboring Senate, uh, Senate district, um, to prove a point several years ago, he had um, traveled from, I believe, Hall County to Cobb County using only public transit, and it took him something like four and a half hours. So that paints a very vivid picture for you in terms of how fragmented our public transit system is here in Metro Atlanta. 
but that's to say the demand is, is clearly there. Um, if you look at a lot of the new major corporations who recently relocated to the Atlanta area, um, for example, NCR, um, Mercedes-Benz, um, these big companies are looking for access to transit. I mean, if you look at exactly where they put their headquarters, they put them right next to transit lines. Um, even Mercedes-Benz is a car company and they put their, I mean, it's a beautiful building, but they put their headquarters right next to Sandy Springs Marta Station. Um, I think that's also one of the reasons why we were not necessarily competitive when vying for um, the Amazon expansion. So I think if Georgia wants to be able to compete economically, and if we want to be able to provide, if we want to be able to provide mobility, and I mean that not only in terms of transportation mobility, but economic mobility, um, we are going to have to provide a decent transit system. Um, you do not have a world-class city without a world-class public transportation system to match it. So as we come close to a close here, let's return to some issues related to campaigning. You know, as everyone knows by now, the pandemic has really upended life for Georgians in so many ways, including the way that we work and in your job, or at least one of your jobs between now and November is going to be to run this campaign for state Senate. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and your team have learned to connect with voters amidst this environment and what it's been like in other ways to campaign during a pandemic? I've been difficult <laughs> to say the least. Um, I think connection is something that people um, are longing for, especially now that social distancing measures have been put in place. And it's something that I think campaigns definitely rely on is to be able to have that personal touch or be able to um, speak with voters in terms of what they need and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, I've been running for, gosh, since a well over a year now. Um, to give you an idea of how long I've been running, I literally was able to make a human since I started running for office. Um, I announced my run for office in April, 2019. Um, and since then I have not only given birth to my second son, but he is now six months old. So <laughs> I've been running for a while now, it feels like. Uh, in campaign years, that's, it feels like a millennia. Um, but it, we were able to start knocking doors early and we were able to have a lot of those in-person events. And I, we were able to do um, fundraisers, we were able to do meet and greets, um, we were able to canvas to be able to go door to door, um, which I think a lot of other candidates who maybe decided to run during qualifying week, um, which is, a, I mean, qualifying week was what, a week before the pandemic hit here? It was the first week of March. Um, I'm, I feel for those folks because they're, they're going to lack that ability or kind of that connection that I had early on um, because they're going to be playing catch up or being entirely digital or entirely remote. Um, so I, I did kind of have that foundation to begin with. Of I had already spoken with hundreds of people whose doors I knocked on um, and hundreds of people that we had had events with to kind of get an idea of what their priorities are for Senate District 56. Um, and that was, that was helpful. But now that we've transitioned to an entirely remote format, um, we're still able to connect with people through... Um, we do, I think a lot of campaigns right now are doing kind of the Zoom meetings or the, the Zoom happy hours. Um, that's been helpful for conversations. But we, we started doing this format we call Good News Georgia because we kind of felt like people were overwhelmed with kind of negativity in their news feed or, you know, every day they're doing updates on how many cases there are, how many deaths there are. And it's, it's 
heavy. I, I think it brings a lot of folks down, um, especially in situations that um, there's a lot that's not in our control. So we started doing these streams called Good News Georgia. Um, I've had Representative Josh McCorn join me before. I've had a, a local restaurateur, Ryan Pernice, join me who provided uh, free meals, no questions asked for folks here in Roswell and in district. And to try to have some conversations about, you know, a little bit more uplifting stuff. And we would have folks on Facebook Live asking us questions, which was super helpful as well. Um, we had Congresswoman Lucy McBath, as well as Representative Mary Robichaux um, and Josh join us for a meet and greet digitally, um, where we had some pretty difficult questions asked through that as well, um, which I appreciate. I think part of um, a public servant's responsibility is to be able to not only um, have people ask them difficult questions, but to try to answer them to the best of their ability. And if they cannot answer those questions, um, tell them that they'll actually be able to look into it further and follow up later on. Um, I think there's, before even the pandemic had, I feel like as a whole, that dialogue was lacking here um, and that accountability was lacking. And being able to do these live streams where people don't have to necessarily show up to an in-person event um, they can just kind of hop on their phone or hop on their computer and ask these questions from folks who are wanting to represent them. It's been incredibly helpful. But yeah, so I mean, we're still connecting with people. It's just not necessarily face-to-face -face or um, the way that we normally would. Uh, our listeners might benefit from looking for that Good News Georgia uh, information because I think we ha we have not done a very good job of of looking for and highlighting good news in our state. It's been a year of a lot of challenging news. Um, one final question for you here. So voters in Senate District 56 are going to have this choice in November between you and incumbent Senator John Albers. What would you like voters to know about the difference between you and Senator Albers? I would say the difference is fairly night and day in the sense that um, not only am I someone who represents a lot of younger folks in the district, full disclosure, I'm 31 years old, um, but I'm a mother of young children. So I know what it's like to um, be concerned kind of what their children are going to be facing in the school system, whether it's pre-K or K through 12. Um, I'm somebody who runs a small business. It's not a side project. It's not a hobby of mine. Uh, like I mentioned before, I have more than 50 employees who look to myself as well as my family to provide them with a paycheck and a steady job every single day. I also appreciate, like I mentioned before, those hard questions. Um, I'm not somebody who's in the frame of mind that if somebody disagrees with me on social media or if somebody's asking me a difficult question that I should defer. Um, but instead, these are questions that need to be answered. I'm not going to block them because I don't necessarily um, see world from the same framework that they do. Um, I'm in looking to serve in the interest of true um being a being a true public servant so it's not only bringing a new voice to the table that i think is underrepresented in the georgia senate as a whole um, but it's somebody who wants transparency and wants accountability and wants to be able to um, try their very best to answer those hard questions well sarah we really appreciate you joining the podcast today and, and taking some hard questions from us if people want to learn more about your campaign for the state senate how could they do that Sure. Uh, you can check out our website at votebason.com. That's vote, B-E-E-S-O-N.com. Or you can find us on Facebook. You can do facebook.com 
slash vote Beeson. Um, I'm also on Twitter at, at Sarah V Beeson and Instagram at the same handle. All right. Well, Sarah Beeson is a candidate for state Senate in state Senate District 56. Sarah, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.